Welcome to The Writing Life, the podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Molly Rose Methurst, the Communications Assistant from the National Centre for Writing here at Dragon Hall in Norwich UNESCO City of Literature. We're nearing the end of October now and looking forward to some brilliant winter activity here at NCW. Our next round of online tutor courses, developed in partnership with the University of East Anglia, is on sale now. Our practical and carefully supported 12 and 18 week courses are aimed at developing work in progress, honing your writing skills and boosting your confidence. All of our courses start on Monday 12th February. Visit nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk forward slash academy to find out more. In this episode of The Writing Life, author Fiona Mason and former NCW CEO Chris discuss life writing. At the beginning of the City of Literature weekend, part of the Norfolk and Norwich Festival in May, Chris spoke to Fiona about the process of writing her memoir, 36 Hours. Originally from the Midlands, Fiona Mason now lives between the salt marshes of the east of England and the Ariège Pyrenees in southwest France, where she's renovating a house with her partner. She holds MAs in both philosophy and creative and life writing, and combines her work as a writer with roles as a coach mentor and creative writing tutor. Fiona discusses how she was compelled to write her incredibly personal memoir. She explores the stigma around talking and writing about death, how she grappled with writing such a vulnerable book and how she makes a living from her work. So now I'm delighted to hand over to Chris in conversation with Fiona Mason. Welcome, Fee Mason. It's a real delight to have you on the Writing Life podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thank you. I'm really pleased to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Our pleasure. We're recording this at the start of our um, City of Literature weekend as mm. part of the Norfolk and Norwich Festival. So it feels like a really nice point to jump off into kind of a literary few days. So thanks for joining us. Yeah. Well, as you'll know from the introduction, Fee is a writer, a mentor, an arts professional and an arts consultant who splits her time between the east of England salt marshes and the uh, Ariège Pyrenees in southwest France I read online. Is that That's correct? That's right, yes. That's Lovely. Right. <laughs> I just want to uh, kind of uh, rehearse your CV a little bit and, say, and just point out that you've got MAs in both philosophy from the excellent Essex University mm. and creative and life writing from Goldsmiths. Yes. So you've been to two brilliant places, which I'm sure we'll talk about and how that's informed your writing as we go along. Mm. And we're here today to talk in part about um, your book, 36 Hours, which um, in 2016 was shortlisted for the Pat Kavanagh Prize mm. and has now finally been published as of the end of last year. That's right, yes. Brilliant. Yeah. So do you want to talk to us a little bit about why you're here in Norwich as part of the City of Literature Festival and we'll kick off from there. Yes, um, well, we're here today obviously to record this uh, podcast, which is brilliant, and then tomorrow, so Friday, I will be um, doing a panel event with writer Rupa Faruqi, Dr. Rupa Faruqi, and um, Caroline Elton, uh, and we'll just be talking about um, writing medical uh, memoir, I guess we, we might call it, life writing and the issues that might arise from writing about life, death, grief, and, uh, and such matters. And then um, Saturday morning, I'm running a creative writing workshop, which I've called Lifelines, um, which I'm very pleased to say is sold out, but uh, we will be looking at, again, how you take your personal narrative 
and craft it into a story that's that's interesting for other people to read you know and it's not just a blow-by-blow account of your life from from year one kind of thing so um and we'll be you know exploring a few different kind of writing exercises and prompts and ideas to help people sort of think about and steer out how they might go about that process Mm. Brilliant. Well, we're recording this sort of uh, in the 25th of May, I think it is mm. today. But um, and while listeners won't be able to recreate your workshop, hopefully by the time this is out there in the world as a podcast, they will be able to download the soundtrack of the event. Oh, that is brilliant. Happening. So we're going to record that and hopefully that Fantastic. will be available as well. And I do recommend people do that. Mm. So um, 36 Hours is the book. Yeah. And Medical memoir is a really interesting term. I think the group of people that you're working with tomorrow have got a very broad experience of Mm. both the personal and the professional worlds of medicine Mm. and how it fits in with life writing. But I think that it's also potentially a term that slightly masks the real centrality, the life centrality of the issues that you Mm. cover. Would you like to tell us a little bit about 36 Hours and how it came to be? Yes, um, it's been. I mean, it was quite a sort of journey to get from where it was in in my mind, I suppose, to a to a sort of published book. But um, the the book covers the last thirty six hours of my late husband's life. Um, he uh, he had lung cancer and um, uh, was ill for eleven months before he died. And uh, I, I was his carer, cared for him, and. Uh, because of the way that his disease progressed, you know, with it sort of, as as any awful diagnosis like that, um, you know, things became quite quite difficult. And uh, but the last thirty six hours in particular were really fixed in my mind. I mean, I, I will probably maybe go on to talk a little bit more about the the format, but um, it it felt really important to me to somehow capture the intensity of the whole experience of the period of illness uh, and sort of distill it into that 36 hours because that's what became really ingrained in my memory and um, part of the exercise of writing was to sort of almost like get the stuff out of my head and onto the page so that I didn't have to carry it around anymore Mm. because I I think I probably had a degree of PTSD from the experience and it, it was a very sort of troubling time for for a long time you know it's taken me quite a lot of healing I suppose to to sort of get through that experience and um and I think that I realized early on that um I can't be unique in my experience you know everybody dies we'll all lose somebody um and I I wanted to find something to read afterwards because probably like a lot of writers and a lot of readers, you know, we, we turn to literature, poetry, we look out into the world for something to help us to navigate the experience that we've had. Mm. And I couldn't find anything, you know, it, it all seemed quite saccharine, lots of sort of like uh, Disney-vi, Disney-fied versions of you know, deathbed scenes and that kind of thing. And it just wasn't my experience. Um, Snowy yeah. coverlets and sort of mm. breezes yeah. drifting yes. the curtains. Exactly. And, mm. Exactly. And everybody, you know, the vigil around the bed and um, and the gentleness and all of that. And that, yes, it completely wasn't my experience. So I thought, well, you know, uh, if you can't find the book you want to read, you must write it. Mm. <laughs> So that's what I did. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. Well, perhaps we should start with the form because I think that what you've done in the book, you provide, a, you've used a particular kind of formal structure that mm. allows you both 
that allows the reader both to be very much in the minutes and the hours of that last 36-hour stretch, but also to see the refraction of the whole, whole journey of the mm. illness through that. Tell us a little bit about how you approached that form and what you decided. Yes, um, I, it came very spontaneously, actually. I decided to write it in um, first-person present. I, 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 I wanted to just put down the memory, I suppose, really. I mean, it, as I started writing it, it was literally writing down everything I could remember minute by minute and um, of, that, of that last sort of period. And I wanted this um, hour-by-hour account so that both, both for me as a, as a writer going through a process of putting it down on the page, but also for the reader, I wanted to invite the reader into the intensity of that experience into the kind of claustrophobic, kind of closed silence of the space of the house um, to get a really strong sense of place. So the the kind of objects and the rooms and the moving from one place to the other within the house during that time, all of these things became really, really important to me. And I think they're what really bring the reader into that experience. Uh, so it was a... It was spontaneous, but once I realised I was sort of going down that route, I thought, yes, this is actually the right way to, to go. I mean, I I wrote it very, very quickly, actually. You know, um, I would have blasts of sort of writing a whole chunk and then I'd have to put it away for a bit because it was too too much, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, the, the way I, I wasn't sort of doing a bit every day, I would probably wake up and just be, OK, right, this is the moment something's got to come out. Mm-hmm and then put it away and come back to it and sort of have a bit of kind of distance from it again. And once you'd sort of um, kind of externalised and captured, to what degree we can capture Mm. all of those memories and thoughts in that first person present, how did you then choose to present it to the reader? Well, I wanted to really give them a sort of an hour-by-hour account. So the format of the book is is every hour of that 36 hours. And, um, And it's... It's completely my experience. So although there are other people present in the book, uh, the story is my, my story. Um, it's, it's, it's everything that's going on in my mind at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, I think, I think that format is certainly from the feedback I've got, and that sort of gives me a sense that good, the idea worked, was, uh, you know, the... the wanting the reader to just be with me to to kind of uh, for the reader to maybe they're going through something similar or they are you know they have a loved one a friend or colleague that has been through something similar and maybe they'll get some insight and some understanding of of what that experience is like uh, of caring for someone at home in the last days of life Mm. Um, and by having the reader it's a kind of an idea to have someone walking alongside you you know um rather than kind of observing at a distance, I suppose. Well, absolutely. I mean, as a reader, I had, um, at the end of last year, a very close friend, uh, two close friends, who are a married couple. Mm. Uh, one of their fathers was diagnosed with esophageal cancer, oh. and within seven weeks, I think, of diagnosis, he, he had died. And oh I had a very minor part in that mm. last sort of few days. Mm. But everything about this just rang incredibly true mm. from their experiences so it felt like a very powerful evocation from mm. that side of things so i wonder if um, before we come back 
to the writing and kind of your story, if you'd like to tell us just a little bit about Michael, because he was such a, a, a obviously a powerful presence in mm. the book and prompted this writing. Yes. Um, well, he was he, he was a brilliant man. Um, he was an academic um, computer scientist and uh, a great family man. You know, um, uh, two wonderful kids and. You know, he loved concrete <laughs> before he'd uh, gone into academia because he went into academia quite late. He'd um, been a builder and a plumber and all sorts of things. And uh, he he was someone who I think just loved constructing. Mm-hmm. And I suppose the, there's a sort of elegance in computer science and, and programming and so on that, that kind of, you know, the architecture of, um, of you know, large-scale kind of, Operating systems and things like that in, in computing, uh, you know, map quite closely to to the architecture in the built environment, mm-hmm. and it's yeah. uh, I could see that there was a real sort of link link for him there, um, because the way that uh, the his his illness progressed, um, the lung cancer, um, he developed secondary tumours in his um, brain. And uh, this led to some sort of personality changes. As, as anyone who knows someone who has gone through any kind of um, brain cancer, whether that's sort of primary or secondary, um, it can have quite profound uh, sort of, you know, make quite profound changes to the person. So um, I think that's a real sort of cruelty of it, you know, that, um, that for, for some people, um, you know, with an awful diagnosis, they can kind of keep going right up until the end in a way and, mm. and, and still feel there's still a sense that it's that person and they're present, you know. Um, that sort of changed, I think, for, for us. And, and that was a really, mm. that was a really difficult thing to navigate because when, when you see someone who's, you know, their, their kind of mind and their brain and their, their sort of intellect is, is so present and so, so much a part of everything, it's um the, the sort of tragedy of that is really amplified it was for me certainly mm. and i think for the family and, and certainly that's the the very sort of um shocking and very immediately engaging opening of the 36 hours that mm. trying to deal with that understanding that the person that you are caring for is mm. both the person mm. that you love and also not in yes. some ways yes did do you were you able to use your analytic writerly skills at the time to help understand that or was it only with past with reflection that that was apparent to you I think with reflection because um unusually for me during the period of the illness I wrote very little I I wasn't keeping a diary I the the my memory of it is in, is incredibly intense and, and vivid maybe in a way because I wasn't writing perhaps that's why it's remained so vivid um, you know, I've always had a practice of journal writing, but I, I think I almost sort of couldn't approach doing that during the during the sort of period of illness. It was maybe admitting too much reality to to keep putting it on the page and say, oh, gosh, today's been a terrible day, you know, mm. or whatever. Um, you know, somehow not committing it to the page. I could perhaps have some magical thinking about you know, la la la, we're going on as normal here and we'll go and have a day out in the camper van and we'll go and do the normal things of life as much as we can. And um, it wasn't until afterwards. I mean, I 
afterwards I pretty much immediately started my journaling again. Yeah. But it was quite a long time before that, I mean years before that became something like a book, you know. Mm. I wasn't writing a book when I was journaling. I was just I was just trying to heal myself, I suppose, yeah. you know. Yeah. Mm. And what what prompted do you think that kind of the change in kind of the making the decision to kind of revisit and write and then shape that experience into a book? Well, actually, there's another sort of deeper tangent or sort of time we can have a deep tangent. But anyway, um, uh, my mum died in 2014, January 2014, and she'd been ill with breast cancer for some years. Mum was a writer, and as is my brother, and I always felt it was something they did mm-hmm. that I couldn't uh, I, I wasn't a sort of a big reader in childhood you know and um, I, I I kind of was I don't know maybe I was a bit inattentive something I don't know but I spent a lot of time at school staring out the window I completely flunked everything I mean it's just ridiculous how <laughs> badly I did um, but then, you know, obviously I, I, I came back, did my philosophy degrees and so on. And so, it's, you know, I, I knew I had the, you know, I wasn't stupid. I could do this thing. And I'd always written, even if I'd kept it quite secret, because I, I felt a bit intimidated, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And I don't think had mum still been around that I would have been able to do it. Gosh. And it's not that she, I mean, she's a very encouraging person and a lovely, lovely person. But somehow as we all have our things with our parents, that thing with that parent for me, I think as I reflect on it and have reflected on it over the years, um, it probably it probably sort of held me back a bit. Mm-hmm. And I felt free to, um, I guess, find my voice as, as a fully-fledged person, mm-hmm. you know, after, after she died. And uh, I... Um, in, so that so that was she died in January 2014, and then that autumn I started at Goldsmiths. I, I um, applied for and uh, got onto the MA in Creative and Life Writing, and uh, that was that was the sort of you know right line in the sand. This mm. this is. This I'm is fascinated it. by that kind of decision. You know, sort of was it something that just crept up on you? The decision to go from sort of naught to 60, really <laughs> rapidly, you know, from not necessarily writing or mm. considering yourself as a writer mm. through to going on to one of the most prestigious writing MAs in <laughs> the know. country. I know, it sounds a bit it's crazy. Great, you know? yeah, it's, it's great. It's wonderful. Uh, I mean, I, I guess that's, um, there is a bit of a, a sort of, I've got a bit of form with that, you know, I do tend to sort of, you know, I, I make a decision to do something and then I'll kind of go, right, I'm going to really do this. Mm. Um, but I, I had been writing. It's not like I hadn't... I, I, I guess I would never have said I was a writer, mm. even though all my life I had written poetry, mm. stories, journal, you know. And, and of course, in my professional life, working within the arts and cultural sector, it's all about, well, it's certainly the way I work, it's kind of all about writing. I mean, I spend... Telling stories. Telling stories, mm. you know, endless funding applications <laughs> and and uh do you know it's an amazing um training ground anyone out there who who's wondering about oh you know all I do is write grant applications I, I really want to write a novel but I'll never be a proper writer well it's the best training ground because the the kind of editorial um uh skills that you develop by having to 
you know, especially if someone else, you're working with someone else and they give you 12,000 words and you have to turn it into a 1,000. Mm. And you can turn it into a 1,000 words that are, you know, really full of meaning and intensity and all the other things, you know. So um, I think that although I, you know, I didn't call myself a writer, I, I was a writer. I was actually mm. earning my living out of writing, mm, mm. just not creative writing yeah. or, or whatever. So I think... Therefore, it wasn't such a massive leap for me. I, I had things I could send to Goldsmiths. I, you know, I, I got pieces I'd written, poetry, stories, sort of um, reflective pieces, essays and so on. And they obviously looked at it and thought, yes, that's OK. You know, this person can do it, <laughs> you know, sufficiently to, to, to get something out of the programme. So, yeah. Fantastic. Well, uh, you know... Here at NCW, we work a lot with writers and translators in the early stages of their career. And it's so common, that kind of threshold between sort of understanding that one writes and calling oneself, however, quietly, a writer is mm. such a big oh, yeah. kind of threshold, even though it might sound very minor. And it, it's psychologically, it's huge. Yes, absolutely. It is huge. And yeah. finding other people to do it with on the other side of that threshold is yes. possibly the biggest thing that you know we do in terms of supporting writers. Yeah. And did you find that a, a good experience at Goldsmiths, kind of finding that community of writers there? Yes. And uh, I mean, it really took me, it took me a while to kind of find my sort of voice, I suppose, with it, because I was trying to write bits of fiction. And, you know, I was in a way trying to kind of follow the follow the herd a little bit you know and it was in the the sort of second term of the first year because I did it part-time over two years so in sort of early 2015 and it was you know coming up to the anniversary of of Michael's death um and I was just sitting in the living room and in the house that you know he died in looking down the hallway and what one of my big experiences of, of a, it's almost like a PTSD experience is I would I would see him, completely see him, like, not like a ghost, but I would see him walking, shuffling down the hallway. It was so vivid to me. And the way the light was that morning and so on, I just started writing, mm. you know, mm. and I realised, oh, this is actually why I'm doing this programme. This is what I've got to do. And I, I took that because, you know, you have, all, you have to have the group crit. It can be incredibly bruising, you know, especially at MA level. It's not like your kind of local bookshop writing class, you know, um, you know, people really, really take the gloves off, and um, and and I presented something to my to my uh, tutorial group. It was um, that term was with uh, Francis Spufford, and mm, and it was it was just an amazing sort of um, moment of they'd read everybody read something, and they were like, okay, this is yeah, this is it. You've got mm. to really try and progress with this, and I got a massive amount of encouragement. Mm. Um, and did that feel like a, a kind of a, a professional as well as a personal catharsis or affirmation mm, even? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. So that point in uh, doing your MA and the discovery of the sort of the excavation of why you were really there or what it was going to do for you, mm. also it seems kind of pushed you out into the world of where literature meets medicine and meets, mm. meets memoir. Could you tell us a little bit about kind of that wider world and those experts that you've since come across in your research processes and in the conversations, for example, that you're going to be having tomorrow. Mm. Yes. Um, 
Well, I had a, a great experience. So the year after I'd, I'd more or less finished the manuscript, I mean, it's, it's, it took a long time from a finished manuscript, I mean, lots of editing, until, uh, until it was published. But in 2017, I think it was, I attended um, an Arvon um, uh, walking and, I think it was walking and poetry week at uh, the Hearst, the marvellous the Hearst. Anyone who loves Shropshire in the countryside, go. It's, it's just a brilliant place. And um, that was with um, Sasha Dugdale, poet Sasha Dugdale and Jean Aitken. And, um, but I met some great people on that week. And I shared some, so although it wasn't poetry, of course, we all shared some of our personal work and, um, uh, you know, did a kind of reading on the last night and that kind of thing. And um, one of my sort of fellow participants uh, put me in touch with Professor... Uh, Bobby Farsili's at um, Brighton and Sussex Medical School because she was a poet and she'd done some some work with with Bobby in a previous a previous project, which um, you know looking at kind of creativity and health narratives and how you can use um, creative writing or art or poetry or whatever to to um, improve communication, you know, bridge, bridge gaps of of sort of understanding, and uh, that that was a, a sort of massive. Um, um, kind of a step change, I suppose, for me because um, I got in touch with Bobby. Bobby read the manuscript and immediately saw the potential of it as um, almost as a tool to help medics. Because of course, there's a medical school there to help maybe young GPs or whatever um, medics in training to have a greater understanding of the of the kind of patient and carer experience and uh, and to maybe that it would be really informative it'd be an, almost like an educational tool um and so that relationship has continued you know we've gone on to do sort of various writing projects together um that that are about kind of using writing as a, as, as a tool in that way and we, I did a lovely project with them a couple of years ago um, during during lockdown, uh, which was working with a group of um, parents of um, young people with rare genetic disorders, and um, you know working in a in a group setting with these with these parents to help them to articulate their experience, so that when they go and have their appointments with consultants or they're talking to the wider world or their family, they can better articulate that experience, and so. In a way, that's taking the, the the kind of form and the ideas and the the um, the values that are behind thirty six hours and and um, applying those in a different setting, and that's what I really really love about it. I mean, I'm really really passionate about that kind of work because I think helping people to develop their own voice and develop confidence in their voice and to somehow put on the page these incredibly difficult experiences. Mm. Um, which it's really hard to get other people to understand. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we did all sorts of things like, you know, just using list poems and basic forms that were a revelation to the people who, who were writing them. You know, suddenly they could understand their own experience better. Yes. And so um, I think I've seen, understood, therefore, there there is this real power in the kind of the medical world, not just in terms of end-of-life care, which is something I'm really passionate about, there being more kind of conversation around death and dying, but in other medical contexts as well. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, certainly as a reader, kind of those 
absolutely piercing moments of when other professionals around you sort of probably not in any sort of willful way just misunderstand mm. the emotional context and it, it just acts, makes you catch your breath as a reader it's, mm. it's very well done so I mean mm. I can see how powerful this could be in those contexts mm. and mm. how and how how where might you want to take this kind of particular approach well I'm now in touch with um a uh oh, so I did I did an event actually with with Bobby and with um um a medic from the Martlets Hospice in Brighton, Brighton and Hove, and with a death doula. And that was part of Death and Dying Week or Dying Matters Week in 2021. And uh, that was, again, having a big conversation about how do we talk better about death and dying, mm -hmm. you know. And, and most of the, the listenership for that, um, it, was a, it was a sort of YouTube thing, that was mostly um, nurses, um, palliative care nurses and doctors. And so that was, I was, you know, really, really pleased about that. And I, I think, so I feel that the, the audience, it's, it's, um, it's the kind of doctors, nurses, medics, you know, people working even within administration in, in the NHS or whatever health service. And, and then it's, people going through and experience themselves, you know, whether as a carer or they've lost somebody or perhaps yeah. even the, the dying person themselves who who is also often absent in consideration in, in a very strange way. Mm -hmm. um, and I really want to be able to do more of that kind of, you know, conversation. So I'm doing um, with a, a, a doctor in Essex who... who um, is at the uh, St Helena Hospice. I'm doing a project with them and Colchester Arts Centre actually in the autumn. Um, I'm going to be working with a group of carers um, to to do similar thing as I did with the group in, in uh, Brighton and Sussex Medical School, where we'll be using the techniques of life writing to um, to help people have a voice I mm. suppose and and at least to feel validated and seen in their own experience um what they do with that is is you know will, will be what it will be but um I really want this book to be a vehicle for conversation I mm. suppose I mean that's that's ultimately why it's why it's out in the world it's a very exposing very personal text I you mm. know it's not something I've put out lightly I suppose yes I really wrestled with whether I should or not but in the end I have felt that it can do some good in the world and that's that's why it's there yeah do you want to say a little bit about how it's felt over recent months having this book out there and mm. you know being you know literally being an open book in yes. terms of this this very very intensely personal experience well it's um I mean it's been in, an incredible experience really because the I guess the response to to it has been it's been everything I've, I've hoped for it I suppose um I've I've had people contact me who are going who have read it and are going through something similar and they're they say to me you know I feel seen you know it's thank you so much and you know and it's I, I mean I haven't put it out there to get positive strokes for me but it just tells me that there was a gap this is needed and um, it's valid. It's validating to me as a as a writer because, of course, it's my words. You know, words have power. 
um, the way we put one word after another, the very precise way a writer, we, we, we choose to do that. It has a purpose. Every word on the page has to earn its place on the page, in my view. Um, you know, that all of that, those years of editing grant applications <laughs> down to 500 characters and so on, that's that's the that's the training ground because you yeah. you can't you, there's there's no room for sort of spare I suppose so um, yeah I think yeah it's it's a it's been a pretty in, incredible experience and um, you know I I believe it can do more I, I think you know it's conversations like this like the ones that we'll have um, over the weekend the workshop you know the workshops with the hospice. I want to do more of that with it and I, yeah. I think it can it's it's its own entity now I mean that's the thing when you put a book out in the world it it sort of no longer belongs to you really you put it in the public domain you've done your work with it and it takes on a life of its own and all you can do is be a sort of good custodian of it I think that's um but I, I feel like it's you know it's out there. It's a fledgling. It's <laughs> it's doing its thing. <laughs> it certainly is, and and uh, uh, I love the cover image, which is sort of a, a dandelion clock with the individual yeah. sort of pieces coming off it. So you know, that's it's also going out into the world like that's that. That's right, and um, that was that's a drawing of mine, and there are thirty six little seeds on there. <laughs> oh, wonderful for each for every hour. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> Good morning again, Feast. Lovely to see you. Great, it's good to be here. I know, we've regathered at Dragon Hall uh, the day after yesterday's first part was recorded. Thanks for the joys of technology, we're going to add a second section to our recording today. Fantastic. And yesterday we'd um, come to a close talking, you know, about the really, the, the heart of 36 Hours and your kind of, your kind of journey and experience as a writer and how, what it had taken to get you there and the book there and what your experience had been. I want to kind of make a jump from that artistic conversation to kind of more prosaic side of things Mm. you know all writers have to exist in the world and they've got to pay bills and live and as well as kind of create so can you tell us a little bit about how you managed to balance that aspect of your writing career and where you found support yes um well i mean I've, i've been able to carry on with the day job which is working in the arts and cultural sector so doing a lot of fundraising and that kind of thing but I was also fortunate in 2018 to get a Developing Your Creative Practice or DYCP grant from Arts Council England. And um, that's been, you know, it's a real kind of game-changing grant because it meant I could buy out some of my time from my day job and uh, have time to focus on my writing and also resource a little bit of mentoring just to help me build relationships that would further my my writing career I suppose mm. looking at partnerships and um, you know collaborations and which elements of that kind of that developing your creative practice program did you find most helpful for you I, I think it was um, a big part of it actually was the advocacy because having an award like that Arts Council sort of believed I was a writer and so that really made a difference to me it, it was probably the first time where I I started calling myself a writer, I suppose, mm. as opposed to just somebody who liked writing, you know. Um, so that, that really did make a, a difference to me. And it meant that I could go to other people, other organisations and, um, you know, su- sort of suggest we get involved in a project together and 
shown legitimacy and validation by having this grant. So it made a really massive difference to me. And in fact, it was at that point that a lot of those sort of relationships that have now gradually developed into projects and partnerships uh, really began. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you uh, briefly mentioned mentoring as well. Would you like to tell us a little bit about what that consisted of and what value you found in it? Yeah, I mean, that a lot of that was really... Um, finding people to talk to who would encourage me and say, yes, you are a writer. I mean, a lot of it was that. And I think um, when you're, you know, I'm, I've, I've sort of been an emerging writer, even though I'm now nearly 60, I can't believe, next year. So, um, you know, I think sometimes when you're a bit of a, a late starter in something and you're, you're kind of needing a bit of a confidence boost, mm-hmm. being able to talk to people, share your writing and just get that kind of validation of feedback is is really massive. Yeah. Uh, so I was able to, um, you know, I worked with poet Sasha Dugdale, for example, worked with Jenny Ooglow and various other sort of authors, poets, people writing in different forms mm-hmm. to just kind of talk through the work. Um, I shared the work with a lot of people before it came anywhere near publishing. Yeah. 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 And uh, the developing your creative practice offer as part of the Arts Council England's wider support for artists and organisations and anyone interested in those grants can go to the Arts Council England website and just click on the funding section for that and you'll find out information there. I think they run about four times a year they yes, have the, I think the so, yeah. deadlines open yeah. and what's interesting about it is that there's no, you don't have to commit to finishing a piece of work or publishing something in particular or doing a particular piece of engagement work, it's more open. That's offer. right, yeah, it's really about supporting the artist at a critical point in their career mm-hmm. and yes, an artist across art forms, so writers, you know, visual artists, dance, whatever and uh, yeah, it's it's really asking the artist to think about what's the step-changing moment for them and um, what's going to really make a difference. So anyone who's thinking of applying, it's, it's really looking at their practice, I guess, and thinking what's going to really make the massive difference and take me from mm-hmm. point A to point, you know, G or something like that. And so um, it's, it really is a step change. And what was that particular moment of change for you? What was that? Kind of sudden realization that you needed to push on a certain door. Um, for for me, it was very much about confidence. I'd say mm-hmm. um, so. Being able to share my work with writers I really admired and and get feedback from them and ultimately get encouragement. That's that's what really made a difference to me because it gave me the confidence to say, okay, this is a real thing. You know, I'm, I'm not just kind of twiddling on the laptop here this is a a real um you know this is an artifact I suppose because I think as as writers you know we we start off writing a book or or collection of poetry or whatever and to start with we're so deeply and personally invested in it but there's a point at which it becomes an artifact it becomes something in its own right Mm -hmm. where we have to put it out into the world and I think that's that's quite a kind of a maturing moment and a transition and it really helped me to to I guess you know, have that mentoring from more experienced authors um, mm-hmm. to help me through that. And so the book is out in the world. You've launched it at the wonderful Wivenhoe Bookshop in yes. Essex and you've got <laughs> events here and other places and a sold-out workshop here as well. Mm. What's what's next on your sort of radar? What, what things are you pondering at the moment? 
Um, well, a lot of my focus, I think, for the next 12 months is going to be devoting my time to the book and, and talking about it and getting the work out because the content of the book and the conversations that it will generate, or I hope it will generate, are really important to me. So that's that's a major focus. But in terms of my, my own writing, I'm looking at a number of sort of different... Um, Again, life writing, I think, projects. Uh, I've got a, a project I'm working on um, about 10 years ago, actually, this year. Uh, I did this crazy cycle ride from Land's End to Shetland, carrying a guitar, writing a blog, and never quite got the book out because of various personal events during the last decade sort of got in the way of that. But I'm quite determined to get that out. Mm. And also um, a, a book that relates to my mother and my mother's experience as a writer and how I as a writer kind of relate to that so yeah a few irons in the fire there mm. um, and that's all material that's sort of percolating and just sort of coming to maturity in the background while you focus yes, on exactly six hours yes exactly and I mean I I have a daily writing practice I write a journal every day and so I guess that's that's also a space where I I kind of practice and think about those mm -hmm. ideas. Um, do you um, do you reread your journal regularly, or do you very rarely go back? I rarely go back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've got volumes and volumes of it. Uh, I recently reorganised my shelves, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> having unpacked from moving house, and and uh, flicked through a few pages. And it's it's always quite a, a strange encounter, I have to say. Mm -hmm. um, not always an entirely good encounter, no. you know, but but it's okay. It is it is what it is. It's a process, and uh, yeah, there are funny. You know, I see things in there. I think, oh, that's interesting. I it, that's I, I might read something actually that has a new relevance to me mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. But generally speaking, no, I don't. I don't reread. It's a place where I splurge. Yeah. Um, but by doing that, you are kind of. It's like going to the gym. I think of that. It's. You know, I always say to other other writers, you know, on workshops and so on, that doing that kind of daily practice, it really is like going to the gym or doing a yoga or whatever your sort of thing is. Uh, it's just exercising those writing muscles. Mm. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I mean, as a reader, you know, the conversations and the thoughts that have been provoked by 36 Hours have been really profound over the last week or so. I feel really privileged to have had access to, to those 36 hours, as well as the many years it's taken to write <laughs> and create that book. Yeah. You know, I really can't recommend it enough. And I just thank you for putting it out into the world and taking that chance. I think it's really appreciated and it's not often enough that writers are just thanked for actually taking the risk. So oh. thank you from all of us. Thank you for being on this Writing Life podcast. And we're looking forward to your event this afternoon. Thank you very much, Chris. It's been absolutely brilliant and uh, really looking forward to this afternoon too. Thank you. A big thank you to Fiona Mason and Chris for their time. If you have any questions or you want to get in touch, you can find us at Writers Centre on Twitter and Instagram. We're on Facebook and you can sign up to the NCW newsletter at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. As a UK registered charity, we rely on the generosity of our supporters to make our work possible. You can make a donation over on the website by going to the Support Us page. Please do subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating and a review because it helps other people to find us. Thanks again. Keep writing. I'll catch you on the next episode. <laughs>